Hello and welcome to Lights Out, the Formula One podcast for fans, by fans. I'm Will and as I look across the digital garage, as always, I'm joined by my co-host or co-driver Sam. Hi Sam, how are you doing? Hi Will, hi listeners. I'm very well, thanks. Buzzing for a podcast, although it feels a very, very long time since the last one and indeed the next race as well, but mm-hmm. very nice to be uh, opposite you once again. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Uh, good to be back in front of the microphone. It was 13 days we last recorded, so it's nice to to dust off the microphone, look at the podcast plan and uh, yes, talk Formula One with you. Uh, sadly, still been uh, no race to discuss. We should have had the Chinese Grand Prix uh, this weekend. But Sam, this week, I've got another question to put to you. So last week, I asked you to imagine if you were the head of Formula One and, and the changes that you'd make to Formula One. This week, my question puts us against one another as I want us to each put the case forward for the greatest Formula One rivalry. Now, yeah. Formula One has witnessed some of the most intense rivalries between drivers over the years, from you know fierce competition to personal animosity. I would say these rivalries have captivated fans and left a lasting impact on the sport. And I think in this episode, we'll explore two of the greatest rivalries in Formula One history and the factors that made them so great. How does that sound? That sounds great. I look forward to it. Great stuff. So this is Lights Out, and away we go with the episode. So Sam, what do you consider to be the greatest Formula One rivalry? Well, here we go. Subject of much debate. Um, Drum roll, please. <laughs> so I, uh, I've i gone for a rivalry that uh, I, I don't think many fans would probably select as their uh, kind of most important, let's say, but it's uh, it's it's the most important to me personally. Uh, and that is the rivalry between one Mika Hakkinen and one Michael Schumacher. Oh, very good, very good. I like this. I like I like how you've gone for what's important to you. So yeah. why so why is this for you the greatest Formula One rivalry? So so I consider it unique for a, for a number of different factors. Um, it was quite uh, short lived. I think we got three years where the rivalry was at its peak. So 1998, 1999, and 2000. Um, so compared to some of the others that we've seen down the years, um, it's probably not had that level of longevity. But uh, the rivalry that they had over those three years was unbelievable. So I am going to spend a bit of time talking about each of those seasons in turn, just to build a bit of a picture about what it actually looked like. Because it was only, I mean, I was, you know, we burn when those races were happening and those championships were being won, but I remember them very vividly. Um, and watching it back over the last few days in preparation for this podcast uh, has been great, really. I've just loved it, like watching all those races again. And it just, everything I loved about Formula One back then came back to me. Um, and there are so many, so many good things that I'd love for them to bring back <laughs> <laughs> that, that were around back then. Um, but yeah, I do consider that uh, the rivalry between those two drivers to be quite special. Um, I think the main the main reason for it is that I think the the rivalry is unique because the level of animosity between the two drivers was never really there compared to others. I think in other rivalries, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about probably a couple actually over the course there's a couple of others over the course of this podcast. Um, those are those those fights got spicy quite quite quickly and quite regularly. Yeah. And Michael Schumacher and Mika Hakkinen, it it never got like that. The racing was always unbelievably good. But the way that they conducted themselves with each other and the respect with which they raced each other and the kindness that they treated each other with during those three years, I, I don't think we've seen anything like it. Never mind in Formula One. I don't think we see much like it in sport, to be honest. I mean, the closest I was thinking about it this morning and the closest comparison I could think of was Nadal and Federer 
two great rivals that just became really close over the course of their kind of battling it out to be the best um each bringing the best out of the out of the other and knowing that they were bringing the best out of the other and sort of relishing and reveling in the relationship so that that really sets it aside and sets it apart from a lot of other rivalries um but yeah maybe um maybe if if i spend i don't know 10 minutes maybe talking a bit about uh those seasons in particular and some there were like some flashpoints believe me it wasn't just a case that they spent you know the whole whole three years hugging and uh waving each other past every time uh the opportunity came along it didn't happen like that um but uh yeah there were definitely some flashpoints so uh they both entered formula one at the same in the same year 1991 they carted together um when they were young as so many formula one rivals do and they actually did the only the one of the major flashpoints was actually in 1990 so they were both formula three champions mick Hackman in the uk and Michael Schumacher in Germany and they were invited to a race in Macau which was essentially an invitational for the best Formula 3 drivers from around the world and Hakkinen and Schumacher were the two best in the world and they were racing each other and um, uh, they, they managed to crash into, <laughs> crash into each other and Schumacher ended up winning it because Hakkinen uh, drove into the back of him it's probably wow. one of the actually one of the few times I remember having watched a lot of Mick Hakkinen driving obviously as a bit of a fanboy it's one of the it's one of the few occasions where I looked at it and thought, oh wow, that was actually quite a big error from him because <laughs> you don't see many. Um, you couldn't defend him there. No, definitely not. Um, and obviously, both both great drivers in their own right. And they yeah, so joined joined Formula One in '91. So Mika joined with Lotus. Um, obviously, 1991 being a great vintage, the year of my birth. Um, <laughs> and uh, Michael Schumacher. So bear in mind, this was back like this was the absolute wild west of Formula One. Contracts were an absolute joke back then. So Hakkinen moved around all over the place and. Um, were sort of negotiating with various different teams after he left Lotus in 93. Um, but Schumacher drove one race with Jordan and then it all fell through and he ended up being picked up by uh, Benetton. Wasn't wasn't the story that he was so good in that one race that yeah. Benetton basically spotted that he was such a talent so then snapped him up? So yeah. You, you're, and you're right, the, the, it was a wild west of like drivers uh, changing teams and teams having several drivers across the season. Yeah, absolutely. And their and their starts, their respective starts in Formula One were quite quite different really. So Hakkinen uh didn't do a huge amount with Lotus really. I mean the car wasn't particularly good to be fair, but um and he had quite a slow start even when he went to McLaren. But when he first went to McLaren in his very first race, he actually managed to out qualify Ayrton Senna. Wow. Which was yeah, pretty ama- pretty amazing. Wow. Like nobody expected it. I and mean, he had an absolute like rookie debut for McLaren there. He managed to out qualify Senna and then he binned it after about twenty laps. <laughs> Unfortunately, fighting with Michael, funnily enough. Um, and it was, yeah, for him, it was sort of four years worth of solid but not great performances for McLaren. The car was quite poor. The engine, you know, they, they had a series of different manufacturers, Honda and Ford, and neither really did the job for them um, that they had done in the late 80s and early 90s. So, yeah, McLaren were a bit of a bit in the wilderness, but he picked up his first win in 1997. Whereas Schumacher, obviously, uh, the move to Benetton turned out to be an absolute masterstroke for him. He ended up picking up two world championships in 94 yeah. and 95, had an amazing start. He joined, when he joined Benetton, he was better than Nelson Piquet Jr., who himself was a three-time world champion at the time. So you imagine, you know, we talked a bit before, haven't we, about Lewis coming in as a rookie and out, outperforming Alonso. Schumacher very much did the same with Piquet back in uh, 1990, in the early 90s. Uh, and then obviously he picked up and, and went to Ferrari in 1996 famously, and that's where that great partnership all started. Uh, but unfortunately, he lost out in 1997 uh, because Michael Schumacher, for those that don't know, was occasionally quite naughty as a Formula One driver. Um, he was disqualified from the whole season because he, on the in the final race, he basically drove into the side of Jacques Villeneuve, 
um and he was deliberately. disqualified deliberately to try and stop him from uh, overtaking him and then um yeah he was disqualified from the season so yeah they both had quite mixed early starts to their careers but there were like that's one of the key differences between the drivers i think as well i mean schumacher goes down as one of the greatest of all time of course everybody will debate whether it's him or lewis because they're you know, or, or ed and are probably they're the three that get debated the most um but they were very very different drivers and i as you know love mckakinen for many many reasons but the main reason i love him is that he was just such a fair driver um and this is to some extent why i think their rivalry dynamic was so good and enjoyable because they were quite different styles and the way, because of the way Mika was, it felt to me like he really brought the best out of Michael. Like Michael never really felt like he had to drive dirty with Mika. I don't think, um, which was definitely a benefit um, of the, of the racing that we saw. Um, but yeah, no, their, their early careers were, were quite, quite mixed before it, it got big in 1998. And so that, that's the first sort of, is that the first proper duel that they have across the season sort of, I'm guessing that the McLaren. So I should caveat that I was merely three years three years old in 1998. So I I wasn't. I don't. I don't remember Formula One at that age. Maybe I would have watched it, but yeah, being three years old, I wouldn't remember it. Were they were they sort of in equal cars in the McLaren and the Ferrari? So this was the first time they were properly like up against each other, going for wins and podiums. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, they got quite close in 1997. So obviously, Mika managed to win his first race in 97 in Australia. Um, and Schumacher got pretty close to the championship that year apart, until the uh, instance I referred to a moment ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, 1998, um, McLaren signed a deal with Mercedes. We all know about Mercedes engines these days. But back then, they're actually relatively unknown. You know, they just recently joined Formula One. Uh, and they put together a really good small block engine, um, and uh, you can you can have one guess as to who the chief designer was of that McLaren in 1998. Adrian Newey. It was indeed Adrian Newey. So oh, Red Bull of <laughs> Red Bull fame. Yeah. So as you might expect, being a genius, he uh, built an absolutely unbelievable car, and every, everybody knew uh, McLaren were going to be a danger that season because of that relationship and because of that uh, manufacturer. Um. And yeah, he built a brilliant car. So I think 1998 is probably the season where McLaren definitely had the edge over Ferrari. I think it was clearly the faster car, but a Ferrari with Michael Schumacher at the wheel was never to be underestimated. And they were getting closer throughout the season. So, I mean, it started uh, it started relatively comfortably for McLaren. The first seven after seven races, they had a 28 point lead. Um, wow, Mick Hakkinen had a 28 point lead over Michael and Schumacher. It's worth, it's worth saying in, in Formula One in those days that mm. you know a race win was 10 points, right? So it wasn't 25 as it is now. So yep. to build up a that point advantage already with with less points available from wins and you know positions, that's that's an impressive start to the season. It was, but as as was Michael Schumacher's way, he went and went away, came back much stronger, and he won three races in a row, got the gap back to two points i think and then in italy which turned out as it was back then to be an absolute stronghold for ferrari luckily for them because we know what the italian press can be like if ferrari aren't very good when they go to italy um they got a one two there and they were level on points with a couple of races to go um which is unbelievable really like when you think about Mm. how close some championships have been like we've had one really close championship in the last 10 years maybe 10 11 12 years something like that i mean we've had a couple of Relatively, where it's gone down ones. to the final. Yeah, we've had a couple that have gone down to the final race. I mean, twenty twenty one is probably the best example, but yeah. it's probably the, the odd one or two over the last, I'd say, like ten years where they, yeah, they've been really tight going to the end. So yeah, that's it's probably more common back then. 
Yeah, so and in the penultimate race, they finished one and two, Mika one, Michael Schumacher two, and Mika rebuilt that small gap he had. And they, of course, went down to Japan, which will feature a few times throughout this podcast. Um, it's one of our favorite tracks anyway, so any opportunity to talk about it. But as it turns out, it's, it seems to be the clutch Grand Prix for <laughs> world championships. Uh, and it went down to Japan. Uh, Michael Schumacher stuck it on pole in Japan and then stalled right oh, before wow. the formation lap yeah uh and so had to start from the back of the grid it was like I, I and i remember this happening and it was just like absolute carnage obviously um and even then he still managed to like drive the wheels off the car pull it all the way up the grid and then he had a tire failure with like 10 15 laps to go and was out of the race and that was it so it was a bit of an anti-climax in the end because everybody was expecting this great race mm. you, know, you know between two great rivals and two very very fast cars um but I think the main thing that set them apart that season, aside from, I think McLaren definitely had an advantage over Ferrari, was that Hakkinen was a bit more consistent. Like he picked up eight wins. Um, they each had 11 podiums, but Mika, uh, Mika finished off the podium twice all season. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so wow. That, tell, that tells you about the consistency of the, of the guy. Um, so yeah, he had an absolutely kind of remarkable season. And yeah, that final, that final race uh, and the kind of, the madness that befell Michael Schumacher in Japan, uh, which wasn't the first or the last time that was to happen to him, uh, handed it to McLaren. Um, but it was such a close battle all season. I, I remember watching it, um, you know, as a, as a kid every weekend, and it was it was great. Really, it was just really close. Um, the cars were really evenly matched. The drivers were really evenly matched. Um, and yeah, it was a it was a special season for McLaren. And at that point, was Mickey your favourite or were you just sort of following Formula One? It was over time he became your favourite. Yeah, I, I didn't have I didn't have a favourite then. I was still I was still young. I mean, you might have been three. I was only seven. So <laughs> I, um, I didn't, uh, I, did, I wasn't uh, super invested. I mean, I, I remember liking Michael Schumacher just because I quite liked the red car. And It was a know, very, Ferraris. those, those, those Ferraris were very, very nice. Yeah. But, you know, I had no, no issue with, uh, with McLaren winning it and, um, yeah, no, that was some of my earliest Formula One memories. Really watching it, it as some of my earliest sporting memories. Quite a lot happened that year as well. Like we had the first, you know, the France World Cups, the first World Cup that I remember. Um, Arsenal won the double. It was a good year, good vintage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so then we go into 1999, um, and again, McLaren have got an absolute rocket ship built by Adrian Newey yet again, but Ferrari managed to close the gap. And um, Mika was behind after eight rounds. He was 12, 12 points behind. Schumacher had had a really consistent start. Um, won a load of races um, and Mika was beset unfortunately by um, a lot of retirements so uh, it was looking like Ferrari were going to scamper off with it and then Mika uh, as happened between the two of them quite regularly and across all three of these years every time you thought oh someone's got the advantage all of a sudden the other guy would find a way to win some races and Mika won two and picked up a second in the next three um, and then we were sort of we were sort of robbed of a really close battle because Schumacher had quite a bad accident that season so he had a really bad, bad crash at Silverstone was that the one he was? He then had to sit several races out for to recover from. That's right. Yeah. So he broke his leg, uh, and he yeah, was out for. A... I, well, I remember I've read about that. Yeah. Yeah. So he was out for a little while, and I, I, there's generally a bit of a discourse that Michael Schumacher would have won that championship if he hadn't broke his leg. I'm not really convinced of that because Eddie Irvine drove great after Michael Schumacher um, had to go to hospital and all the rest of it, and he. I think Eddie Irvine won three out of the next six races after Silverstone that year. So it wasn't it wasn't like, you know, Mika went on and just totally dominated and nobody mm-hmm. else got close. Like Irvine did a really good job. And in fact, after the Malaysian Grand Prix, Irvine was four points ahead of Mika Hakkinen. Oh, um wow. yeah, which was uh, and that was a really controversial race as well. If you wanna if people want to go back and have a look at the Malaysian Grand Prix in nineteen ninety nine. Um 
as as seemingly always seems to happen in Formula One, there was a bit of an argument about something on the Ferrari car. So the barge boards, they were questioned. Uh, they had they were stripped of all of their points and their wins and stuff from that race. And then they appealed it, won the appeal, and then there was appeal of the appeal, and it just it got you know extremely messy very quickly, as as all these things tend to do when teams start arguing about the designs of their cars. <laughs> Um, but anyway, they had their points reinstated, so they went in with a lead. And then, of course, Japan comes around again. My... <laughs> another one decided in Japan. Another, another clutch Grand Prix, yeah. Uh, Michael Schumacher was on pole. And I think Japan was probably Mika Hakkinen's greatest ever win, actually, that race. I think he he overtook uh, Schumacher, totally drove the wheels off the McLaren. Schumacher had to finish above Hakkinen to help Irvine win the title and David Coulthard did a really good job of holding up Eddie Irvine, which by the way, David Coulthard owed Mika Hakkinen because also during the 99 season, David Coulthard drove into the side of Hakkinen, taking him from pole to last place in the middle of a team- race. They were teammates, weren't they? At they were. That year? Yeah. yeah, they were. So David definitely owed Mika that one uh, and held Irvine up. Uh, and yeah, that was uh, Mika Hakkinen's second, second and final world championship. But wow. Ferrari, Ferrari won the constructors by four points that year. Like they put together a really good car, and it was really close. Ninety nine was probably the closest it was between those between those two teams. So that's quite rare. We, we've not had many years where the constructor is not the world champion. Yeah, uh, you know the, the drivers world champion. So it shows you how good Mika must have been to a beat David Coulthard to win the world championship. Um, but also there's just you know the strength of that Ferrari car for them to still win the constructors despite not having Michael Schumacher there. Yeah, no, they def- they definitely closed the gap Ferrari um, and continue to do so. And as as we find in the in the 2000 season, caught up. And so is that is that second World Championship win for Hacken in that second season? Kind of does that kind of taint the rivalry a little bit because it wasn't kind of like say we were kind of robbed of that rivalry? Or does it or was it? Or was it still, you know, it was still a well-deserved championship, but for the rivalry, it was kind of a bit, it was kind of a bit on pause whilst, whilst Schumacher was out of action. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it was a bit of a shame that we weren't because it would have been a decider. I mean, we'll come on to two thousand in a minute, which which Michael Schumacher did end up winning for Ferrari's first first world championship. Um, and so you 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 had the you know Hakkinen won in ninety eight, Schumacher won in two thousand. It would have been a really interesting battle in ninety nine because they were so evenly matched and the cars were so evenly matched. I don't, you know, we, we could all you know spend ages a bit of guesswork mm. and try and speculate about who might have come out on top um mm. i don't know if it necessarily taints the rivalry it perhaps taints the sort of the expectation that we had in that season because it was yeah. so good for the first half until until schumacher schumacher's accident um but i didn't yeah i mean i don't think there's anything you can take away from from hacken in that season i mean drove a great season yeah. beat, beat schumacher beat irvine you got he, cap- well, he capitalized he capitalized on schumacher not being there right of course yeah you can only you can only beat what's in front of you right so yeah, yeah. um yeah, because you imagine, can you imagine if you'd had that season, you'd battled Schumacher, and then Schumacher is out of action for several races, um, and then you've got the opportunity, and you don't take the opportunity to win a world championship. When you then see what happens in the next five years of, well, five six years of Formula One history, yeah, like you know, fair play to him for maximizing that and still being able to get another world championship to his name. Yeah, absolutely. Um... And then, so so two thousand uh, was a two thousand was a really interesting year actually because I think I remember even I remember being nine years old and thinking <laughs> and thinking Schumacher seemed a bit different. Like right. I think he like I think he basically had enough. Like he'd lost out for a couple of years in a row. I think he he did feel a bit aggrieved about missing a good chunk of the ninety nine season. And I think he it felt to me like he'd learned. Like his racecraft was a bit better throughout that season. Right. 
And that was just a sense that I remember as you know, a nine-year-old who had absolutely no analytical skills whatsoever. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just watching the red car do very, very well. Um, but yeah, um, McLaren was sort of beset by unreliability at the start of the year. Schumacher won the first three races in a row, um, was 24 points ahead after three races because Hakkinen was out so, you know, was taken out so often. And then, of course, Hakkinen comes roaring back in the middle of the season, as either of them would always do. And he ended up taking 42 from 50 available points over the next five races. Wow. And but, can I ask, can I ask, as an, as a, you said you were nine years old at this point, mm. were you a Hakkinen fan yet? Or were you still like, oh, I just love Formula One, love both these two? No, were, I think at this point, you're still sort of just sort of being the neutral. I, 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 so there was one moment, I think, in 2000. Um, well, okay. So there were two moments in 2000 that probably really cemented Hakkinen as my, favorite then and I'll, I'll talk about both so okay um so in the middle of the season so yeah Mika Hakkinen comes back has a great period Schumacher has a few issues has three retirements during that time Hakkinen starts to catch up and then Spa comes along the Belgian Grand Prix one everyone one of everyone's favorite races epic, epic circuit yeah it is an two ap- minutes two minutes a lap yeah uh, and obviously back then as well I mean it wasn't like it was now like it was still um, extremely high speed at the top of Rouge, quite dangerous. Um, that was still one of the most dangerous corners in Formula One, particularly in wet conditions. And it's still pretty tricky now. Um, but back then it was, um, yeah, uh, spine tinglingly fast. Uh, but probably the greatest overtake ever seen in Formula One happened in that race. Ooh, Do you, I don't know if you I, remember it. I don't, I don't remember it and I don't think I know it. So I might have to ah, go and find this. Okay, well, it's so worth a Google. It's unbelievable. So, uh, Hakkinen um, gets ahead, builds a pretty pretty big gap, spins the car. Uh, Schumacher overtakes him, and then Hakkinen claws him back slowly. Bear in mind, there's absolutely no DRS. There's none of that. You know, get within one second, and you breeze past your opponent. This is any every every any and every overtake that happens throughout those three years was really hard earned. Um, so Hakkinen closes up, and Schumacher, as was his as was his what was a bit naughty under braking, um, and on the straight. So when you come up uh, Eau Rouge, it brings you onto the Camel Straight, and that's basically the best place at, uh, in Spa to overtake. And over the course of a few laps, Hakkinen kept getting into the slipstream, shooting up the hill, getting right behind Michael Schumacher, and looking like he's going to make the overtake. And Schumacher would weave right across him, cut him off, and, and sort of pushed him onto the grass a couple of times. And you could tell Hakkinen was getting a bit hacked off about this. Uh, so anyway, the third third time it happens, they come flying up Eau Rouge again and they come across a backmarker called Zonta. He's driving quite slowly. Obviously, he's a backmarker. Bear in mind, back then, listeners, backmarkers were actual backmarkers. They were often lapped like two or three times during a race. It's not like it is now. Or like you get There's lapped one. once and it's deeply embarrassing back then. Usually, and it was usually Nicholas Latifi. Yes. Uh, not, well, not back then. Cars were much, you know, the slow cars were really slow. So you get lapped a lot. Anyway, they approach Zonta and Hakkinen's right in the slipstream again behind Schumacher. And he jinks the car slightly to the left, sells Schumacher a dummy. Schumacher goes to the left of Zonta, right at the end of the straight, and Hakkinen swerves off to the right and goes to the right of Zonta. And they both simultaneously go either side of him at 200 wow. miles an hour into the braking zone. And Hakkinen slams the brakes on. He's got the inside line. He makes the overtake. And it is, oh, amazing. without doubt, one of the best overtakes in Formula 1 history. It's well worth a watch. I'm, I'm going to find that. Yeah, it's, uh, it was unreal. Brilliant. Um, brilliant racing. And that was probably the, uh, I don't know, I don't want to call it the high point, probably both at the absolute peak of their powers, um, both in brilliant, evenly matched cars. Mm. And they both drove, I mean, Schumacher, I think, was probably a bit naughty a couple of times during that race. But what I, what I love most about the about that race is 
a lot of drivers would have been absolutely fuming about how Schumacher defended. I can think of several on the grid right now that have been flying down the pit lane waiting to have a yell at whoever it was. Hakkinen, at the end of the race, goes over to Michael, they shake hands, you know, there's all the hugs and all the rest of it, still best mates or whatever, having a lovely old time. And then Hakkinen proceeds to sit down and explain to Michael why his defending was so dangerous and not really good racing. That's what he described it as. He said, oh, I just went and had a chat with Michael and told him that, wow. that that weaving and kind of defending wasn't really great racing. And that was it. And it was just so chill. That, it's like that's, the most that's pretty chill rare. Guy. Yeah. And compared to Michael, like who we've seen a few times by that point, um, I mean, I remember one instance, I think it was, was it Monaco? He went marching down the pit lane to try and yeah, yeah, have yeah, a yeah. fight with David Coulthard. Yeah, took his helmet off and stormed, sort <laughs> yes. of run down the pit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, you never saw any of that from Hakkinen, another reason he's an absolute ledge. Um, and after Spa, after Hakkinen's win, he was six points ahead in that championship. You know, bear in mind, 10 points for a win, yeah. So he was a good, good chunk, good little lead he'd built there. And then they go to Italy. Ferrari stronghold, of course. And uh, Schumacher wins the race. And this is probably the point at which uh, I'd, I'd sort of, my love for Mick Hakkinen was sort of forged, really. So, so was the first moment, you said there was two moments, the first moment of that overtake, was, yes. this, was this the second one? This is the second one. So the overtake was unbelievable and like his general kind of attitude. I mean, I loved it anyway, just because he was just so, I don't know, there's just something about him. He is such a chill, brilliant person. Anyway. Uh, I won't eulogise him the whole podcast, <laughs> um, but it's nice to have the opportunity to talk about someone who's not been in the sport for 22 years now. Um, after the race, so after Monza, that was Michael Schumacher's, I think it was 44th win, and he'd equaled Ayrton Senna's record. And obviously done it in Italy in a Ferrari. It was a really special day for him. And uh, in the post-race press conference, you have Michael Schumacher, Mick Hakkinen, who was finished second, and Ralph Schumacher, who finished third. And that was actually the first time in Formula One history that you had two brothers on the podium, incidentally. Um, and a reporter asked Michael what he felt about, you know, equaling it and record and what, what it meant to him. And it obviously meant a huge amount. And he started to have a little like cry uh, during the press conference, like break down a little bit. And the thing that really struck me about that moment was it wasn't Ralph. It wasn't Michael's brother that consoled him. It was Hakkinen, like straight away. As soon as he saw, he like put his arm around him and like gave him a little like hug and stuff and then oh, asked, wow. asked the press team if they could take a break you know it was just like that moment what, i just remember nice thinking guy. yeah like that in the absolute heat of battle bearing in mind he just lost it yeah you know, he was looking like he was going to lose a championship lead like going for the third one like the the stuff that was on the line in that mm. moment and he still managed to find you know find whatever it was in him that made him such a nice person and like to console his biggest rival just love what, that so, what yeah. top bloke yeah uh, so they're two points. They're separated by two points with three races to go. Two points, three races to go. Wow! <laughs> but wow. this is the third year this has happened. Third year in a row they've got within two points of each other, uh, and it ha- everything happens in Japan, of course. <laughs> three times back- in a row now. Three times in a row. <laughs> back to Suzuka, everyone's favourite. And uh, Michael Schumacher took pole by 0.006 seconds <laughs> from Hacker. So if you ever want, an, if you ever want uh, an advertisement for why Formula One in the late 90s and early 2000s was good, there you go, right there. Like two drivers, two different cars at the top at, of their game, separated by six thousandths of a second. At that point in the season. Yeah. Unbelievable. Like, I, yeah, I, I don't think we've seen anything that close since, personally. But um, anyway, Michael drove a great race. Um, he actually was helped out by, and don't lol, some fantastic Ferrari strategy. 
Yes. Well, Once upon a time, was, listeners. Was that, was that one of the last few times that we had a good Ferrari masterclass in strategy? Oh, I don't know. They were good for a little while, weren't they? But yeah, no, not these, not these days. But no, back then they were top of their game. And um, yeah, so Michael was two seconds behind Mick Hakkinen before the first pit stop. And after it, he was four seconds ahead um, and went on to win the race and take the title. Um, and he was first, his first one with Ferrari and obviously the first of five in a row that he would win there. Um, wow. But yeah, it was another really, really close, well-fought season. As you would expect, they both shook hands and had a great laugh about it after at the end of the race. Really good. Um, and I've got some great stats for you, if you want, Will, about those Go three on. seasons, having spent Go 15 on. minutes talking about all three of them. Um, Far away. So between 1998 and 2000, excluding the time in which Michael Schumacher was out because of his uh, broken leg, uh, Mika Hakkinen earned 243 points. Michael Schumacher earned 238 points. Wow. Mika Hakkinen won 16 races. Michael Schumacher won 17 races. Mika Hakkinen earned 23, no, 29 podiums. Michael Schumacher earned 29 podiums. Amazing. And on only three occasions in that entire three year period were they both off the podium. <laughs> It's just mind-blowingly consistent brilliance for three that, years. Also, that, that shows you um, two drivers that were a class above everyone else. Yeah, you know, they, you know, it wasn't like they were even like a few others in the mix. They were differently to everyone else. Yeah, they were. It was just yeah, it was a remarkable. That is proper, that is proper like impressive, impressive driving from two from two drivers. Yeah, and, it was, and there weren't there weren't that many flashpoints really. I think Spa was probably the closest they came to an accident. Really, and they, like the, and they sat down and talked about it afterwards. Yeah, they had a conversation about you know the the virtues of racing styles, basically after after a really intense Grand Prix fighting for do championship. You, do you think it would have not have been as good of a uh, rivalry if Hakkinen Hakkinen had never won a right to world championship? The fact he comes away from that with two world championships does that kind of show you that you know that's that's what made the rivalry really good because it showed that Schumacher was beatable. Yeah. Uh, over a season and so yeah well do you think that makes a massive difference was do you think that would do you think the rivalry would not be as good as if if um if Hacklin had gone close on those other two and then never, no, won, I, never I, won yeah I don't think so I think I think Hakkinen I don't know it may be a stretch to say he was the only driver who was a match for Michael but he's definitely one of a couple probably um mm. I think in throughout the 90s I mean Williams built some brilliant cars in the 90s and won some championships for Michael as well Damon Hill Jack Villeneuve Nelson Piquet etc so but but I don't think any of those three drivers are in the same conversation as Michael but I think Mika probably is um yeah they were so evenly matched um and for yeah for him to come out on top two years out of those three was pretty pretty good effort I mean we know what Michael Schumacher is you know his legacy and going on to win five in a row and the dominance that he had uh over the rest of the grid for for five years um was pretty pretty unparalleled until lewis came along and did something very similar with mercedes because we hadn't seen that before really um well i suppose vettel won four didn't he but yeah it's not it doesn't happen too often but yeah for i i agree i don't i, I think if mika hadn't won those two championships then yeah it wouldn't have been wouldn't have been the rivalry because he'd, he'd have just been another guy that michael had beaten mm, recently mm, he'd have been another yeah, one yeah. pablo montoya or whoever you know another yeah. great driver another seemingly quite quick driver that just couldn't get the business done yeah. Now I don't I don't know how the Mika Hakkinen story ends. I obviously know where you know Schumacher's Formula One story goes. Hmm. What then happens to 
to Hacklin for it in you know in the rest of his Formula One career? Does he still get the odd chance in you know twenty twenty? It does he still get the odd chance in two thousand and one to sort of battle Michael for the odd podium and win, or is he? What, what happens? Not really. It was a bit of a disaster for McLaren. He had. I oh, think, really? I can't remember how many retirements it was, but I think it was five or six out of the first ten races or something. He oh. was nowhere near it. Like and he and, yeah. and he had all of them. Yeah, I think so. Like oh. he, yeah, he was. I think he was beaten by his teammate that year. Uh, and I think he took a. He was it a sabbatical in. I think he took a sabbatical about two thirds of the way through the season after. Um, basically, after it became mathematically impossible. And uh, so Hacken always this, there were basically two factors behind him deciding to retire. So he retired formally in 2002, took a sabbatical before that, and one, Kimi Raikkonen, came in to replace him. So what? So at the end of 2001, he doesn't come back? That's right, yeah. So Wow. I think, is that right? Was pretty incredible. In 2002? I think he may have taken a sabbatical in 2002, actually. So he did He did drive through the 2001 season. Um, but yeah, he lost, I think he lost his, he, well, two things. He lost his kind of drive to keep winning and I think as well because he'd had a family and that was the reason he took a sabbatical to spend more time with his family I think and it does happen with some drivers there have been others since then that have had a similar uh kind of similar outlook um when you have kids it does change you a bit and I think when you're driving a Formula One car at 200 miles an hour you probably do think about things a little bit differently and Hakkinen himself had a really bad accident in 95 as well so he had a really big accident in Australia at Adelaide he was unresponsive. Like he went into the wall at 120 miles an hour. Um, unresponsive. They had to do an emergency tracheotomy. He was in a coma for two days. Like he had a really serious. It cracked his skull as well. So he had a really serious accident. I think I don't know if that stayed with him. Obviously, he drove the wheels off cars for the next sort of six, seven years after that. But um, he definitely listed the kind of risk he was putting himself at as one of the reasons he decided to retire relatively early for a Formula One driver um and spend more time with his family so yeah it kind of it was a bit I don't, I don't know if it petered out necessarily i think he kind of retired at the right time really like he did what he wanted to do in the sport decided he had other priorities and moved on basically and went and went to do other things um which was a bit of a shame and i was obviously gutted about it because i was you know 10 11 at the time still really enjoying him being on track and hopeful that we're going to get that battle back again you always want it you always want it again you know when you have it yeah, for a few you years just, you just dyed your hair blonde to look just like McAkin. <laughs> yeah, could you imagine? Wow, uh, I'm not sure I could pull off that hairstyle. One day, I reckon. Yeah, I think it'd suit you if I keep it. Yeah, if I can keep my hair, maybe I'll give it a go. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was a bit of a a bit of a petering out of one of the greatest drivers and greatest rivalries in history. But um, yeah, absolutely brilliant between the two. And yeah, so the main so the main reasons it's my favourite. Obviously, the three years are really, really close. Two big rival teams, two rival drivers. But I think the, the, the sort of discerning factor for me and why I love the rivalry so much was the respect mm. and cleanliness with which they raced each other. Because as we've seen in other rivalries, which we may talk about actually in this podcast, I can't, I'm not sure which one you've picked, but there are a few to, few to pick from and they all... Seem to be, soon to be revealed. They all get spicy. I remember <laughs> lots of uh, flashpoints and things, which we never really had. Um, the kind of kindness between the two drivers. Um, I mean, even after after Mika retired, Schumacher said the one driver that he took satisfaction from racing against was Mika, um, which is kind of high praise from at the time yeah, yeah, the yeah. greatest driver ever. Yeah. And he and he'd race with Senna as well. Yeah, big time. Yeah, so Senna and Hakkinen were basically the two drivers that Schumacher re- respected most. I think. Um, during not his Lando Alonso. <laughs> no, not his brother. Not. not his brother. No, no, I don't think so either. Um, but yeah no brilliant brilliant rivalry and that's that's uh, it's it's unique and obviously it's personal to me like uh, you know that yeah. was the first 
sort of big rivalry that I remember in Formula One, and it's probably that's probably one of the reasons it's my favourites. But yeah, it's that real like respect between the two of them. I yeah. think was the the factor that made me think, oh yeah, that's got to be it's got to be my pick. And I reckon I reckon some of our listeners will have thought, oh, we, we, they're just going to hear stories of punch ups and you know animosity and crashing into each other all the time. But it's actually you know that's that's nice to hear a, a rivalry that is so so intense, but also like you say, they are the two the two best of that era mm-hmm. and that period. Uh, really battle it out, uh, and then yeah, you say be on such a such respect, you know, such respect between them as well. Um, and I, I think as well, like like you you, you probably if you listen to our uh, episode on Lewis Hamilton a couple of weeks ago, like Formula One, when when you support and you follow a driver, and they you know they are amazing, you know they're going through like a purple patch, or you you witness their sort of their greatness and their achievements. It's it it's such special memories, and so. Uh, yeah, and probably like you say, you, that was your introduction to the sport. You could have been a fan, you know, ten years later, and you could have gone through a really boring, you know, Sebastian Vettel walking every season. Whereas you, you, you followed the sport and got into the sport at a time when there was two great champions sort of battling it out over several seasons. Mm. Yeah, and uh, do you know what else? There was refueling and no DRS. Well, even better, even better, <laughs> and the FIA weren't corrupt. Yes, <laughs> and Christian Horner wasn't a team principal. No, not quite, not quite. Although he was just that, he, you know, he joined the sport pretty quickly after that, yeah. and then. Uh, Gus Verstappen was he was he racing at that point? He was, yeah, he was. Yeah, Max's dad. Yeah. Well, that 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 was really good. I I, I found that really insightful, uh, really interesting. Um, you know, I, le- I learned a lot there. So, um, thank you very much for that, Sam. I feel like I I know a lot more about McAkinen now, <laughs> and also you know it's nice to hear it from that side because I've, I've there's a brilliant book on uh, Michael Schumacher I think it's called The Edge of Greatness mm. and it's all about sort of how Schumacher basically pushed it to the edge of greatness and sometimes he was great and sometimes he pushed it too far mm. um it's a brilliant book and so if you want to read a good book on Michael Schumacher um I would fl- I would recommend and there's there's obviously that really brilliant um and fascinating documentary on yeah. on Netflix of Schumacher as well but you know I obviously wasn't paying much attention to Hackenden so maybe I should go and Reread that book and rewatch it just to see the bits of that. Because I do remember the clip you said about him comforting him after Senna, um, mm. but I obviously didn't spot it was happening. Um, yeah, no, that was that was I greatly enjoyed that. And so after the break, I'll I'll be revealing what I think is the greatest Formula rivalry. Welcome back for part two. We've been talking about our favourite Formula One rivalries. And now, Will, it's your turn. What is your greatest Formula One rivalry? So I've gone for Lewis Hamilton and Max Stafford. <laughs> no, no, I, I haven't. I haven't. Um, listeners are probably bored hearing about speaking about those two. Uh, and we did cover uh, Lewis's rivalry with Max in our special on Lewis. I've gone for something a bit different this time. Uh, and this is of a season I was not alive for. So, uh, well, a rivalry, sorry, that I wasn't alive for. So I've gone back through Formula 1 history uh, and I've gone for Ayrton Senna versus Alain Prost. I think that is probably one of the... I'm, I'm willing to state this claim. I think it's one of the few rivalries that has its own Wikipedia page. It's <laughs> that iconic of a rivalry. It's that mega of a rivalry that it's, yeah, it's, it's earned that honour of having its own Wikipedia page. So um, I'm not going to tell you about how they you know both got into the sport um 
Although I think they had similar sort of routes. Well, Senna had to work really hard. He was in quite a slow car. Whereas I think Prost came into quite a good team from an early age. That's, I'm not an expert in Alan Prost. I know a bit more about Senna, but I know that um, Senna was at Tolman, which was a quite a slow team and actually performed wonders and then went to Lotus. Um, and they became teammates in 1988. So, you know, almost 10 years before the period we've just talked about. Um, and they were teammates for two years at, at McLaren. Um, but things got ugly pretty quickly as they battled for sort of supremacy on the track. Um, and the thing, the, the, so I'll come to this throughout the, my sort of my pitch of why I think that it was the best rivalry and the greatest rivalries. I think um, they were both incredibly talented drivers. They both won between them. They won seven world championships. Um, but I think that what makes the rivalry so good was that they were so different. They had such different styles to driving, to their approach to races uh, and their personalities. You know, Seller was that sort of raw speed, willing to take risks, while Prost was the more strategic and calculated sort of driver. And I think, you know, I would say it was like that wild animal, whilst Prost was, was known as the professor. And there's, I think one of the stats you'll come to later, but, you know, you can see the difference in their styles and how it imp- impacted the number of races they won. Um, so you had these different styles, you had them confronting each other, um, but you had them battling similar to Hakkinen and Schumacher over several seasons. And so I, I really enjoyed sort of going back and sort of rereading the history of what happened between the two of them, but also just watching some of the clips as well. And one thing I was struck um, was you know, those cars, They, if you look at the, you know, the design of the McLaren Honda from 1988 or 1989, it's such a simple looking car mm. and yet it looks terrifyingly quick and it just it just i think i think the sport really hit on to what it should be about you know fast cars flying through the street circuits of you know monaco and around the world of these great circuits uh, and they just look awesome they just look rapid and i think someone at formula 1 i won't talk about too much the current formula season but someone in formula 1 should go and just 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 go and sit in the archives and just think, what do we need to get from Formula One history to bring it back into the sport? Because if you've if you've never seen a clip of you know one of those McLaren Hondas, and you might have recognised them, they're the brilliant red and white Marlboro uh, McLaren Hondas. I've, I watched a clip of them both going around Monaco, and it was just oh, it gave me chills. Oh, the, the onboards, yeah, the onboards, but also just the footages of the way they sort of like fly through the corners. And I think because they're so light and they're you know they're much shorter than this year's car, mm. they just yeah you can't you can't beat them. Um, I would say that I would say, I'd probably put it out there that red and white uh, livery is probably my favourite Formula One livery, probably after the the W eleven, the Mercedes W eleven. Mm. It is iconic, and yeah, it was an absolute monster that that car for a couple of years. I mean, what was the stat they won? There was one year they won. All bar one race or something, wasn't it? Yeah, there's, there's definitely, I've definitely got a good stat. Uh, was it nine? Was it? I'll, I'll come on to. It. I've got a good yeah. stat about race wins. Okay, nice. that's a nice little teaser there. Yeah. Um, but also just on that red and white car, what I've seen is that um, so McLaren still, I think they still have both or a lot, quite a few of those cars from that year in yeah. their sort of collection, and they let um current drivers, so I think Daniel Ricciardo, Lando Norris, Lewis Hamilton, Jensen, um and some of the other McLaren drivers whose names get me, they've all had the opportunity to drive 
uh, and take you know go in one of those cars like Good Festival Speed, and I've seen I've seen them at Good Festival Speed in the flesh, and you can just see that they're they're, they're sort of sitting. They can tell they're sitting in Formula One history, and they're so overawed they get to sit in the same seat in the same car that these two legends uh, sat in as well. I got to drive these amazing machines. Um, it shows you that you know they're probably one of the few cars in Formula One history that's so sort of historic. So um, yeah, like I said. They were racing against each other for about 10 years. And, you know, they were both very active. Senna won three world championships, whilst Prost won four during that same period. And that was even him taking a sabbatical during, uh, Prost taking one of the sabbatical during 1992. Mm. Uh, and I think they were, similar to Hacken and Schumacher, I think they were the best two drivers of that era. You know, I saw that they were ranked the top two drivers of the 1980s. And they were both in the top three for the 1990s. Now, Sam, can you guess who the third driver was? Oh, for the 90s? 19, for the 90s. Oh, it's got to be Schumacher, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm, I wonder if Hacklin's fourth. <laughs> Probably. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. In comparison to Schumacher, who yeah, obviously won a couple in the middle of the 90s and then was consistently near the top, basically, for the rest of the decade and only lost out on a couple of occasions to Hacklin on very narrow very narrow margins i think yeah mm. schumacher's probably got to be in the top three isn't he really mm. and so when when prost and senna were teammates at mclaren honda for those two seasons this is this is a crazy stat they won a combined 25 or 26 controversially which is actually, it's actually mm. 25 but it should have been 26 but i'll come on to that shortly out of the 32 races when they were teammates Yikes. 25 out of 32 in two seasons unbelievable which shows you, you know, great car but also great drivers um, and I found out actually when I was researching this that Prost in 1987, 88, going into that season, he was the one that pushed. He was already at McLaren, having just won uh, two world championships with, with McLaren. He was the one that wanted them to sign Senna uh, from Lotus in 1998. Uh, and I think Senna had done very, done very well at, at Lotus. He wasn't winning championships. But was doing an impressive thing, and that, and also that Senna, that's another. As we talk of the good-looking cars, that black and gold Team Lotus car, yeah, oh, oh, that is a beauty. That is a beauty. Yeah, that was a classic livery. That says a lot about Prost, doesn't it? Really, that he sees a guy, he's absolutely smashing it at another team, and he wants him to he be his teammate. Him, yeah, he wants to prove yeah. he's better than him. Yeah, and this is when their season, and their, sorry, this is when their rivalry first starts. So, nineteen eighty-eight. It's the first season they are teammates. Uh, they dominated similar to, to Red Bull as, as Red Bull are currently at the moment, between them winning 15 out of 16 races that season. So that probably points to the fact you're trying to think of earlier. Mm. Um, Senna won eight with 13 poles, uh, to Prost winning seven with two pole positions. So I think that's a really interesting stat because it shows you Senna's one lap dominance, you know, just to put it on pole position. But then it also shows you the genius of Prost sort of his race sort of strategy to come back and win races he wasn't on pole for. Um, and yeah, I just think, I, I think that's probably one, one of my favorite stats about the two of them is that, and their rivalries that, you know, that's that alone showcases the brilliance of, of both of them mm. and just the speed of them as well. So Senna is coming from behind. Uh, he's trailing the championship, I think, as we go to the last race of the season, uh, which I think is at, I'm pretty sure is at Suzuka. So another one that's at this is the fourth race of the of the this is the fourth world championship that's been decided at Suzuka, but uh, so Senna qualifies on pole, uh, he stalls, 
I think ends up in about 13th. And then he comes from 13th uh, to second, right behind Prost. And then he overtakes Prost to win his first world championship. Mm. So that's, I think that's an amazing first season to come into a team where the driver your who's your teammate has won uh, two world championships the previous two years with that team. And then come in that first season and be like, nope, I'm going to show you who the boss is and, you know, beats him, dominates him. So, uh, well, not dominates him, but, you know, beats him and count makes the, gets the world championship. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's in, in sort of their terms, I think that was the, probably the calmest sort of on track battling between the two of them. Mm. You know, I think it's quite a fair racing. Although there was, as I was reading um, online, I think there was sort of accusations from Prost that Senna was getting special treatment, which is quite extraordinary, really. Do you think Prost would probably have been pretty well established at the team then? Yeah, well, so there was a rumor, wasn't there? And I think it was confirmed actually. At some yeah, point it was later that Honda had developed the engine to favor Senna's driving style a bit more than Prost. Yeah, which is yeah. it is kind of bizarre, isn't it? When you think, because I don't feel like that would ever happen now. If you if you're a driver who's not won a championship, moving to a team that's just won two mm. or with a driver mm. that's just won a couple, and then the team's or the car is being designed primarily for your benefit over your rival, that's quite unusual. Yeah. It'd be like it'd be like if Lando Norris signed for Mercedes tomorrow to partner to partner Hamilton, mm. and they said, "Right, we're no longer going to do what you want, Lewis. We're going to just do what Lando wants." And then Lando wins the World Championship. So it's yeah, you know, it would be quite extraordinary for that to happen. Um, yeah, yeah. But if, I think I think that's where the relationship starts to sour. Sorry, you were, you were going to say no. I was just saying, if viewers take nothing else, or listeners take nothing else from this podcast, it's that if you're going to buy tickets to a Formula One race, make sure it's for Suzuka and travel to Japan. Yeah, it's yeah, worth yeah. it. <laughs> well, actually. Because that's when Suzuka was either the final race of the season mm. or the penultimate one. Yeah. Whereas now it's about three, four, five to go from yeah, the final it's race. Probably Brazil now, isn't it? Aspect that's like no. Do, do you know what this? Do you know what this season is? Guess what the penultimate race this season is. Oh, so we've got. We finished Vegas. Our rid- it is Vegas. Oh, oh, hey. Oh god. Oh, hey. Anyway, back back to back <laughs> to the 1980s. Um, Less of less of uh, <laughs> modern day Formula One and, and the travels and tribulations of that. Anyway, so 1989, their second season and final season as teammates. This is another very competitive season between the two, sort of trading race wins as well. But I'm going to take you straight to the penultimate race of the season. And can you guess where this penultimate race of the season is? Is it Japan? It is. Uh <laughs> Prost has a 16-point lead in the Drivers' Championship. So, like we said, a decent advantage. Mm. So, Senna needs to win and start... Uh, and he needs to win this race and the final race of the season, which is at Australia. Um, and so, he qualifies and puts the car on pole. But he um, he has a slow start. And, you know, I think it's, it's about... I think it sounds like sixth or something after a slow start. I think mm. it's just a nightmare. So, Prost is, you know, cruising around on course to win. The, uh, the world championship because you know Senna needs the win to 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 be able to maintain the championship fight, uh, and then so Senna spends the race catching up to to Prost, which I think is quite incredible because you know he, he's in the same basically the same car, or maybe a slightly better car, but you know it's not it's not like the different teammates uh, different sorry it's not like they're in different teams fighting off each other they they've got equal machinery in theory, mm. so he catches up to to um. Senna on lap, I think it's about, uh, sorry, Senna catches up to Prost on lap 42 out of uh, 56. Uh, and for the next five or six laps, 
there's about a second they sort of maintain about a second's gap between them and i think there's keeps trying to get closer and closer to Prost to try and overtake him for the for the for the lead and then on lap 47 i think it's the penultimate corner the penultimate maybe the last corner of the, yeah penultimate corner the one before that Senna gets basically uses the slipstream. He comes out the previous corner really well, uses the slipstream, and then he manages to get on the inside uh, and gets, you know, breaks later than Prost. And so he's got the advantage going, he's got the racing line going to the corner, but Prost sort of refuses to sort of uh, let Senna pass. So he blocks Senna and they sort of collide. And there's not massive damage, but, you know, they come together and they both stop and both their cars uh, stall. Because um, the car stalls and Prost looks around and goes, well, you know, we've both stalled. I don't need to carry on driving because, you know, Senna needs to win. I'm going to park up and I'm going to get out my car and that's it. Whereas Senna knows that he needs to fight and needs to, he needs the win to, you know, to carry on his championship battle. So he manages to get the the, um, the steward, uh, not stewards, the marshals to give his car a push down the escape road. That manages to restart his engine because I think these cars must have been really like, you know, they didn't have anti-stall yeah. software that these current cars do. So, you know, managed to get his cars restarts, comes into the pits, gets a new front nose, um, comes out in second place, then managed to overtake the chap that's in first whose name escapes me, and then goes on to win the race. Immediately after winning the race, gets disqualified for for winning the race and disqualified from the race. And he gets disqualified because he missed the chicane. So because he took the escape road to sort of restart his engine uh, and to, you know, that's where he was on the track. It wasn't like he deliberately chose there. Um, he, you know, was disqualified. So he, he immediately appeals and he blames the FIA president, who at the time was a fellow Frenchman to Prost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he accuses him of sort of wanting his, his, um, his compatriot. Countryman, thank you, uh, to to win the world championship, but the FIA um, don't don't you know don't overturn it. So then take they take it to the Court of Appeal in Paris, and the Court of Appeal uh, comes out with an even harsher sentence. And they I think they issued like a crazy like a sixty six hundred sixty thousand pound I think on McLaren at the time, mm. which people said they, yeah, but they basically made it even harsher, despite McLaren uh, saying that you know Senna got no advantage by taking out. That missing that chicane um so yeah so it ends in real bad blood um with prost winning the world championship because you know senna's been stripped so i think that you know if if that, another clip you should go and watch on online is just watch that like that that crash in the aftermath because um yeah it was very political and it was sort of two teammates clashing at probably one of the most key moments of of the season yeah, that really and that really soured the relationship, I think, as well. Well, that, yeah, because Prost decides to leave McLaren after that point because he doesn't want to be teammates with with Senna anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame, really. I mean, well, it isn't because of what happens afterwards, but like in, in the context of kind of McLaren and having two teammates fight out in the same machinery, it was a bit of a shame. But um, yeah, an absolutely iconic period of Formula One, and that and that Japan race, I remember. I remember the one the year before. Well, I not remember as a child, but I've watched the one year before as well and mm. yeah, always always seemingly de- delivered. But yeah, I, in the, the Senna documentary, which is well worth a watch, um, that that kind of decision and like the, the effect it has on Senna in particular was uh, like really interesting psychologically to hear what he yeah. had to say about it and how he dealt with it. Like you, you'll never hear a more driven person. It was just like, 
he basically felt like he'd been robbed and he, take, he takes it very personally and there's yeah. his most iconic uh, quote I think in Formula 1 so I think in one of the interviews pro- after the race process well there wasn't a gap there mm. and then so someone sort of challenges Senna on this saying well you know there was no gap there and Senna sort of says you know if you see a gap as a racing driver and you don't go for that gap you can no longer be considered a racing driver which yeah. I just think is a brilliant brilliant sort of racing driver quote um and yeah, you're right. That that um that that bit in the way it shows it in the Senna documentary, which is I'd highly highly recommend. It was on Netflix. I don't think it's on it anymore, but mm-hmm. you should definitely scout it out if you've not seen it because it's done by the guy that did um the Amy Winehouse um documentary. So it's you know it's not a sport documentary. It's very much a yeah look at the personnel. But anyway, back to back to the two of them. So uh, it's 1990. Um, Prost has moved to Ferrari, and I actually found out that. After that that season when he left uh, McLaren, Prost had it in his contract everywhere he went that they could not recruit Senna to be his teammate. Yes, which is extraordinary because you know like you said they recruited him and then he moved, makes it legally impossible for them to become teammates. Yeah, shows how big bad the falling out was, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. I don't think we'd ever see. Well, I don't know. Maybe. Well, who knows? We don't get to see any more modern Formula One contracts, do we? But um, it's hard to imagine that being imposed or a team accepting that. Yeah. Um, I suppose Ferrari knew they were getting a. A special driver so they probably were willing to uh make that trade yeah and so this i think in 1990 this is so when prost joins ferrari um ferrari uh you know i think i had a period of being very uncompetitive and this is the first time they're really sort of challenging again with prost you know their multiple time world champion at the helm uh, i think he won three at this point and I'm going to take you to Japan Suzuka again for the penultimate race again. This is this is generally not a not a joke. Um, this is where seemingly every season has been decided in this in today's episode. So going into Japan this time, uh, it's a flip of the previous year. So Senna's got a nine point lead with the with one race left to go, uh, and Senna qualifies pole. Yeah, Senna's qualifies pole and Prost is second. But controversially, the pole line, uh, well, the pole position was on was off the racing line. So um, that would mean you'd get a worse start because you're not getting the better rubber. Uh, and also you're at a disadvantage sort of when you're then approaching the first corner. So Pro, um, Senna massively protests the FAA saying that, you know, this is unfair. I'm on the, the weaker side despite being first. And, you know, classic FIA they do nothing about it they 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 don't do that so Senna is absolutely furious about this he's so angry that you know he's basically at a disadvantage at such a key part of the season um and what makes matters worse is off the line uh Prost gets a better start because he's on the better side of the grid uh and overtakes Senna so Senna in his absolute fury and rage decides to line it up uh, and going into that first corner, deliberately decides to drive into Prost, putting them both into the gravel, putting them both out of the race, uh, and ending Prost's World Championship bid because he needed the points to win. So Senna wins the World Championship in complete acrimony, in, quite, in very, very controversial uh, style. Um, and I just think it's an extraordinary moment for a championship to be side by basically an act of sabotage. I'm surprised he didn't get... I'm surprised he didn't get penalized or you know didn't get stripped of anything but he got he's got lucky there yeah he did um <laughs> it's so deliberate as well it's like 
I mean, you sort of in in modern day for one, if that happened, I think if you if you in any way suspect it would be deliberate, you'd see an immediate disqualification. It would have you'd mm. have to find a way to deem it a racing instant or make it at least look like a racing instant. But he didn't even bother trying. I think um, he considered it justice, didn't he? Really, Senna for yeah. what happened the year before, and a lot and of fans the... probably did as well. Like, yeah, I do think I do. I mean, you can't base everything on a documentary, but. Um, I do think there are a lot of there are a lot of Formula One fans, a lot in South America, particularly that considered what happened in '89 to be an absolute travesty, really, for the sport. Um, where have we heard that before in podcasts that we've done together? <laughs> um, and yeah, I do, I do, I do get the sense that um, the FIA probably didn't want to get involved a second year in a row and have another court case on their hands um, yeah. and and let it slide. So, yeah, I guess I guess the. I guess they decided it was sort of six of one, half a dozen of the other at the end, and they let it go. But um, it, it's unbelievably deliberate. And yeah, Senna, brilliant driver, but he, he had that in his locker kind of any time he needed it, really. Yeah, and I think Senna at the time doesn't admit that it's deliberate. I don't, no. I've not seen the post-race thing, but then the following season did say, yeah, I did do it deliberately. Um, yeah. So yeah, so then Senna wins his 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 uh, his next World Championship. Um, and then from that period on, they don't really have a similar sort of battle. Senna sort of struggles to get a championship winning car. McLaren is not as good over the next couple of seasons. Then he then moves to Williams, um, and that's not as good as well. And then, uh, no, before he moves to Williams, Prost moves to Williams, and that was a period of like real dominance for Williams. And we've conveniently managed to get Will talking William and Williams here <laughs> it's not, yes. without without design. Um, but Williams, you know, they go on to win several world championships at that point you know Senna um Prost wins his his final world championship in 1993 um and similar to what you said you know there's obviously a lot of like bad blood between the two of them but actually I think they did reconcile and they did sort of really respect one another when they were no longer teammates and no longer fighting for championships and this is there's a brilliant brilliant clip of um it's Prost so Prost at the end of the 1993 season decides to retire and he he comes second or third, I think it's second in the final race, and surprise, surprise, Senna is first. Uh, and when they're both on the the podium in Australia for that final race, with Senna, uh, in Prost's last race, um, Senna pulls up Prost onto the top step, and like Prost is like really sheepish about it, but he insists on pulling like Prost up onto the top step to share it with him. Mm. And you can tell I've seen there's a clip of uh, Alan Prost saying that like, that was one of the nicest things that. Has ever happened to him, and like it was, it showed you the mark of the man to sort of, um, you know, to do that. And then, very sadly, um, Senna dies the following year at Imola uh, in a high speed crash. And there's a there's the, the bit about the funeral in the Senna documentary um, is very well done. And it, there's that brilliant shot of Prost walking past the coffin, which I just think is, yeah, is just, you know, it just shows you the respect that they have really. Um, they had for each other really and you know both such top blokes as well and so for me i for me i think it's the greatest rivalry i think you get everything you get different racing styles um they're both winners you know they both won a lot in that period against each other similar to what we discussed earlier they both came out as world championships as, as a result of their battles with one another great drama between the two of them controversy crashes but also two of the greatest drivers in, in formula one history you know prost leaves the sport on four world championships center on three um, and you know, I think they're both amazing. And I um I saw a summary. Uh, it was a table sort of uh, compiling what different sort of uh, 
newspapers and media outlets considered the greatest driver. And it, I was actually quite shocked by this bit. So despite um, Prost winning more world championships, out of the 11 that had ranked the, the top driver, nine of them had said Pro- Senna was the best and two of them had said Prost was the best. Mm. Which is you know quite... Like, and I think I'd love to know the fact of why Senna was more popular. I think there's a whole range of them, you know, is... His character, his driving style, um, but yeah, I just thought, thought it was quite interesting to see that comparison. Yeah, they they were really really different drivers. I, mean, I think the thing for I think the thing about Senna that really sets him apart is like the, the just the unrelenting rawness of his desire mm. to drive a car as fast as possible at all times. Like he never he never slowed down. Like we talk a lot in modern day football about uh, modern day football, modern day Formula One about management of tires, right? Like and, and you know, you see car, you know, see engineers on the radio telling their drivers to slow down and to manage their tires. That would never, ever happen with with Ayrton Senna. Like he would drive as quickly as humanly possible for the entirety of every race he was taking part in. There was no, there was no, you know, there was never a sheepish moment or anything. It was always like full blooded on the edge at all times. And I think that made him really compelling to watch. Um, made him a really remarkable driver but it did result in mistakes as well and that's probably where you people differ about what their opinion of formula mm. one drivers is like what what do you want from a formula one driver do you want one who's going to be relentlessly fast and drive the wheels off the car 100 percent of the time or do you place value in someone like prost who didn't do that necessarily all the time didn't didn't feel the need to was a bit more calculated about how he drove the car and there were similar comparisons to be made for some formula one like modern formula one drivers as well although they're all probably a bit more prost than they are senna these days um yeah it's 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 a really interesting debate but i i can see why uh, a lot of people do pick senna because what he could do with a car on his day was special like yeah I, a tr- the true pace of a driver is qualifying i totally understand that like winning races um is the marker of a great driver and a great champion but in terms of raw pace and speed qualifying is the marker by which you measure how quickly a person can drive a car in prime condition right low fuel best tire conditions you know same conditions for everybody etc like and and Ayrton was an absolute specialist in qualifying and that sometimes did mean yes in the race he pushed too hard and made mistakes and cost himself wins and probably cost himself championships down the road but there is something quite pure i think about a driver who's just willing to drive on the limit for the whole time and can mm-hmm. never can never be told to do anything otherwise so yeah. no arguing with him that was a uh, very, very well put very well put and I think I think if you watch if you watch any clips of Senna driving, yeah, and especially if you watch that documentary, um, you you do come away with it with a real. You just it's on the eye, you, you know, just you just look on the eye, you know, looking at them both. You, you just you just such an it's you know it's, if you say what does should a Formula One driver race like? What does it you know what's what is Formula One driving? That's that's the definition. That's why so many people aspire and and in a by by Senna, you know, Lewis is a massive um it's a massive person that massively sort of was inspired by Senna, had the same helmet colours as, as Senna because he was such an you know impactful sort of driver on it on his career as well and has such a lasting legacy in the sport as well. And when I was uh researching I saw that Netflix is actually producing a six part mini drama about Senna's life. Mm. Um so fingers crossed they they do that well because if you've um if you've seen the film Rush about the Nicky Hunt and like Nicky Hunt, <laughs> Nicky Lauder and James Hunt rivalry, if they capture the sort of the racing and the speed of of Senna and Prost and the battles they had across 
six episodes i think that could be uh that could be you know amazing uh, amazing piece of television but we'll have to we'll have to wait to see about that and so yeah there concludes my take on what i think is the greatest rivalry a keen great, to know a great selection will yeah I, yeah I feel like we've got we covered some really interesting uh characters there if you've never heard of mick hackenden or alan prost you've learned about two new drivers and if you you know knew a bit about all four drivers hopefully you can weigh in you you know you know a bit more about them today so yeah that concludes our our rivalry episode thanks will and thanks for joining us everybody remember to subscribe and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice if you did enjoy it why don't you share it with a friend hopefully they enjoy the pod more than ricardo zonta enjoyed having a ferrari and mclaren fly past him simultaneously at 200 miles an hour in belgium <laughs> because if you watch his on board <laughs> it's probably the most terrifying video you can imagine um i'm yeah. gonna find that i'm gonna find that it's worth a look it is yeah it's scary driving um if you want to follow us on twitter please do we're at the lights at lights out lads and on instagram we are at the lights out pod will what do we have in store for next week so sam another week and no race uh this weekend <laughs> This is quite the uh, unplanned spring break, I think, for Formula One with the cancellation of China. So I thought, having discussed um, you know, a bit of Formula One history this week, I thought we could return to the current season to discuss the five things we've learned this from this season so far before we kick off in Baku the following week. Uh, and I'll give you a little teaser, uh, which won't appear in next week's episode, but a little teaser. One thing I've learned that I'll, I'll quickly like to cover now is that it's great fun discussing Formula One with you sam every week um so yeah lovely thanks will likewise you're welcome you're welcome uh, and so soon uh we'll have 10 races in 14 weeks so you can get used to talking about another red bull win every week for a good few weeks join us for a jolly old time indeed indeed and that's all from us all the best and goodbye bye bye <laughs>